All right, you can be seated now, and we will open Scripture together and uh, resume our study of the Ten Commandments. We are up to number six. In the original Hebrew, the sixth, seventh, and eighth commandments are all just two-word phrases, just three sets of of two-word phrases, so it's the negative. No murder, no adultery, no stealing. Also, they are short in our translation, which makes it, as, as we've been uh, made the habit now of, of reading these together congregationally, they're sort of short for congregational reading purposes. And so what I've done is just, we're going to just review the Ten Commandments, and we'll just go through from the beginning, not the whole passage, but just reciting what they are, those Ten Commandments. So if you would just join me, and we'll read this out loud together. You shall have no other gods. the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. On the surface, the sixth commandment seems to be the, one of the most clear cut of, of the commandments, the, the one that seems to be inarguable. Kevin DeYoung writes, it seems obvious and uncontroversial. If any command could go unstated, any that we as human beings and good neighbors would simply assume, perhaps it would be this one. It's also the one that most of us are probably tempted at saying, well, I, I get to take this week off. I mean, I, I, I might struggle with some of these others. I, I've, I've you know, struggled with lying or coveting. I've probably messed up in how I've talked to parents. I've certainly struggled with idols in my heart, but I haven't murdered anyone and I have no plans to. So I, I can sort of let this one go, right? Well, before you do that, before you come to any assumptions, let me challenge your thinking on that, uh, that, that either assuming that this is obvious and uncontroversial or has no specific bearing on you. And I would start with a quote from Philip Reich, and we'll quote him several times. I've mentioned his book to our home group leaders. If you're ever looking for more reading on the Ten Commandments, I think Reichen's book, Written in Stone, is one of the best on it. And Reichen writes, when we study the Sixth Commandment carefully and come to understand its full implications, we find that no commandment is more blatantly or brutally violated. That sort of grabs us, that he says this of the you shall not murder command, and that's because there are heart motives and desires. There's what goes on within us that rests behind all of these commands. And so there is lust that incites adultery, and there is self-protection that leads to lying, and there is hate that shows itself in its worst form in murder. But all of this goes back to what, what goes on in our own affections and passions and desires and motives. So at its simplest level, the sixth commandment forbids the unlawful killing of human life, and that would Throughout the Old Testament, it's also made clear, would include the taking of life through negligence or foolishness. We would classify that, at least criminal code, we would say that's manslaughter, so murder and manslaughter. But it also condemns the angry heart that harbors violence and speaks insults and belittles other people. Now, there's the level where we all are brought into the game on this discussion, right? Uh, We've all struggled at some level in our hearts with anger, with insults, with mocking, and Jesus certainly takes this as a clear interpretation of the sixth commandment that we'll look at as we get to Matthew 5 a little later. But for now, turn to Genesis chapter 9. If you're in Exodus 20, go back to Genesis chapter 9. 
The, the man or woman on the street, if asked about the Ten Commandments, the unbeliever who just gets interviewed or surveyed about the Ten Commandments may well dismiss nine of them and say, they, they don't really have any bearing on me. All of the, the stuff about God and no other God and then adultery, well, I, I think that's a, a private matter. And stealing, if it's something small, it's probably not a big deal. Lying probably avoids bigger conflicts sometimes, right? And coveting, who cares? That's, that's sort of the attitude of, of the average person on the street. But this one is different, this sixth commandment. You probably will find it much more difficult to find somebody who dismisses number six and says, well, that's a dumb command because they all agree that, well, there, there's something to this. You should not murder. Now, the man or woman on the street will probably say some explanation that has to do with the finality of murder. There's something about murder that we understand is unique in the sense that there is no, there's no undoing the taking of a human life. There's no partial murder. That once it is done, it has ended a life and there is no going back. And so it is the most atrocious, most serious thing one person can do to another. But we need a biblical reason for why God commands this. It is not simply an issue of finality because, frankly, we believe that God has made us as living souls who go on to live eternally. And so we understand that finality is in the physical sense, not in the eternal sense. And so how does God forbid it? And if you think back to Genesis chapter 6, it describes how the earth is filled with violence and wickedness, um, that, that God is looking upon all of the evil that goes on in the earth, and at that point, he brings a catastrophic flood on the earth, first delivering Noah and his family and, and, and saving them through this, but then also destroying the rest of creation at that point, the rest of humanity, and, and that in and of itself may raise some questions that we'll think about in a moment, but... But after the flood, the waters subside, God speaks to Noah and he commands Noah about the bounty of nature that is there for him to sustain he and his descendants and they are to have dominion over creation and his mandate is to be fruitful and multiply. And then in Genesis 9 verse 6, the pivotal verse that we'll be thinking about here at the beginning is, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. There's the, there's the key to this, that last statement, for this, this, because of this, God made man in his own image. He is hearkening back to creation, back to Genesis chapter 1, when, when God does the work of creation and establishes there in Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image, in verse 27, says that's what God did. He created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so man is made in the likeness and image of God. God could not have been any more explicit about the uniqueness of his creation of human beings. All of the creation uh, steps that we see in Genesis chapter 1, God is speaking things into existence. He is speaking into existence the, the majesty of the universe and the stars and the, the wonders of the animal kingdom and all of the creativity that goes into it. And, and here in the midst of all of this, there's this planet God has made that, that just remarkably sustains human life. And there is all that God has done to speak this existence into creation and he declares it all to be good. And then he does something that he didn't do with any of the rest of creation. He reaches down into the dust of the earth and he says, it says he forms a man 
and he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. It is a, a wholly unique way of making something. From everything had, having been spoken, now by God's own forming, man is made and receives this life from God as a completely unique creation. And then God singles out this living being. Only of human beings does he say, made in our image, made in the likeness of God. The image of God then means that we, as humans, possess certain attributes, certain unique attributes that are patterned after our creation. And so it is to human beings that God, there in Genesis 9, gives dominion over the rest of the created order. It is to man that God says, you will rule over creation. It is uniquely to man that God says, I will make you a suitable helper. There's something about the way man is made relationally that God says there's a specific design here for companionship that is required. Man is unique in his rational, spiritual, and emotional capabilities. That's what allows us to, to comprehend who God is, to worship God, and then to commune with God, for his spirit to dwell within us and for us to have a relationship with him. And in fact, we are described as living souls. Man is not just a physical body. When this body stops living, when breath is taken from it, our soul will continue to live. We will go on forevermore from this point as living beings continuing to exist. That's why Genesis 9-6 is so crucial to our understanding of the sixth commandment. Because it says fundamentally to attack, to murder a human being is to do violence to the image of God that is in man. It is to attack at something that has been made uniquely by God and bears the image and likeness of God. I want to come back to Genesis 9, 6 because it does raise a significant question. But one more thing about this, just the command in Exodus 20, 13, you shall not murder. Some of you grew up, as I did, hearing it in the King James, that thou shalt not kill. And that's not the most helpful of translations. That word kill seems sort of indiscriminate, sort of broad, and it's not a really good, helpful word there as the way the King James translated. Because if, if the sixth commandment is a general prohibition against killing period, then we've immediately got some problems in the Old Testament with the wholesale slaughter of animals as directed by God in, in sacrifices. We have God uh, directing the Israelites to destroy entire cities and their inhabitants as they move into the land. And we have God mandating what we would regard as the death penalty, as capital punishment for certain crimes. And so there is death in, in, in the scriptures in the Old Testament as it's spelled out there, that is not prohibited. The sixth commandment is not a wholesale ban on all forms of killing. And, and, and what helps us to know that is the specific Hebrew word that is used in Exodus 20, 13. Throughout the Old Testament, words that we would translate as killing or murder show up a little over 300 times. But this word in particular that's here is used 47 times in the Old Testament. It's rotsak. And it is a word that very specifically describes murder or manslaughter. It is very specific in its references throughout the Old Testament that it is speaking more often than not of, of cases of manslaughter, but also some specific cases where there is an unlawful taking of a life. Rotsak is never used to describe a governing authority 
executing a guilty criminal. It's never used of the military killing an enemy, and it's never used for hunting or killing animals. In fact, the only place this Hebrew word is even in the same verse as an animal is Proverbs 22:13, where the foolish man wakes up and says, I don't want to go to work today. And he says, I can't go to work because there's a lion out in the streets and he will kill me if I go outside. Something none of you have probably ever tried texting to your employer at some point. The little <laughs> lion emoji and can't go outside today, sort of. That's the only place that it has anything to do with animals. And it's the reverse. It's the, the lion will murder me. The Hebrew word in the sixth commandment really has a very narrow scope of meaning, and it is not to condemn all killing, but to precisely forbid the the taking of human life, the unlawful taking of human life, because human beings are made in the image of God. And so it is the the, the cheapening, the trivializing of human life by taking it for, for wrong purposes, for illegal purposes. It is prohibiting murder of another person. All right. We're gonna do this a couple of sections. Stuart helped me think about this during the, the break. We're gonna talk about some, some broader applications, some harder section applications. Then we're gonna get down to the ones that, that really hit home, I think, for all of us in terms of, of how we apply this. But these, these first ones, these are the harder ones. There are some difficult questions that come up in relation to this commandment. And this is why Kevin DeYoung at the beginning said, it's, it's not as obvious as it looks. And Genesis 9-6 is our first at least culturally problematic statement, when it says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Genesis 9-6 is the first of several clear commands in the Old Testament that speak very firmly about the reality of what we would call the death penalty. It is God sanctioning execution as a punishment for murder. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Something very important to observe about this verse. Genesis 9-6 is long before the Old Testament law. It's long before Israel. So if the temptation is to say, well, capital punishment was for a specific people at a specific point in time, we are back really at the beginning, sort of the restart moment in creation where Noah has just come off the ark and God is giving this mandate to Noah and saying, you will have dominion over creation, you will be fruitful and multiply, and... If a man takes a life, his life may be taken as well. And he is prior to the Old Testament law, speaking to Noah, saying this is a command of God. The death penalty then was not a new invention when we get to the the Ten Commandments. It was not something just for Israel at a particular time. The Old Testament law does define it in places and applies it in, in, in some specific terms, but the principle is, it goes all the way back to the beginning and, and to God speaking to Noah. The principle also then goes beyond the Old Testament law. If we go to Romans chapter 13, we see this reaffirmed when God sanctions again the authority of government in Romans 13. I think it's always helpful for us when we read this to remember that Paul is in an environment where the Roman government was not exactly kind and democratic and giving everybody a say. The Roman government was heavy-handed, dictatorial-type leadership, and yet it is to that environment that God said, I still sanction government rule, and in particular, let's look at these verses, Romans 13, verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, 
And those who resist will incur judgment, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So here's the context. You see it. It is submission to governing authorities. It is speaking to believers, a persecuted lot already in a difficult environment, and saying, as long as you are not being told to sin, you are to obey these governing authorities. And with that, with God's commission, he says, the ruler is my delegated servant, and I have delegated to him the authority even to punish to the point of execution. That's what he means there when he speaks of him not bearing the sword in vain. The sword was a tool of execution. So government has access by God's design to the highest form of earthly punishment for lawbreakers. Now when he says bearing the sword, it's not a technical term that's limited to capital punishment. It is a broad term that certainly would include that, but also would include the authority of the government to protect its people and use deadly force. So military force and law enforcement is, is captured in this idea that the ruler bears the sword. And so any argument that our culture might give that would try to say, Jesus came and, and everything is, you know, that's abolished at that point. There's no death penalty. Would have to do away with Romans 13 because Romans 13 is very explicit about what God has sanctioned for government to do and what he has delegated to them and given them authority to do. Let's be clear about this. God delegates authority to sinful people. Where, where we struggle with this is because the, that, that middle step, the ones to which he is delegating this, are flawed. And, and, and we are a sinful people, and so there is the, the, the struggle here because God does this with parents and with husbands and with church leaders and with governments. He is desirous of maintaining order. He is a God of order, and so order is part of his design, and, and order is to prevent chaos. And so he delegates authority, and yet our application of the law and our sense of justice and our rational thinking are all flawed by the fact that we are sinners, that we still struggle with our motives. And so there is no perfect government, just like there are no sinless husbands who are heads of their homes. I know, ladies, you know that already. There's no perfect parents who have authority over their children. Kids, you know that. There are no flawless church leaders over local churches, and there are no sinless governments administering this. A couple months ago, I read the story of Kennedy Brewer, a man who in Mississippi was convicted of killing his girlfriend's three-year-old daughter and spent 13 years on death row until DNA evidence fully exonerated him, found the man who did it, and he was released. Uh, on one level, we look at that and we realize that that man lost what we would describe as probably the prime of his life in prison. Fortunately, his life was not taken by that injustice. But nonetheless, we know that there have been wrongful executions. And as a believer in Jesus Christ, you may struggle in your conscience with the death penalty, with its application. You may be troubled by it, but I, I would urge you to, to 
to concede the principle, the biblical principle of God delegating authority to governments to even deprive of life those who had committed crimes worthy of death. That was established before the nation of Israel. It, ex- it went beyond the nation of Israel and is reaffirmed for us in the New Testament that God asserts this authority in a biblical worldview even if you struggle in your conscience, should not try to erase what is God's truth and what is spoken to us as a biblical principle. Now, having said that, as believers in Jesus Christ, we should be amongst the loudest and clearest voices for the most thorough, most careful, most impartial justice system that flawed man can have if for no other reason than the fact that we believe that every human life is made in the image of God, even the life of the accused. And so we should strive for justice as well. That's our understanding of this, I think, from a biblical perspective. That's one hard one. Let's talk about another one. There's several instances in the Old Testament, particularly as the Israelites are coming into the promised land where God says you are now going into these cities, these idol-worshiping, God-hating cities, and you are to destroy them. You are to, to wipe them out in Canaan, and they were told by God to utterly destroy the enemy. If you're looking later at different stories about this, Joshua 11 is one such place. And Joshua 11 also describes the hard-hearted, hatred of the dwellers of those cities against the children of Israel and against their God. They were adamantly opposed and hateful toward them and ready to kill them. And so their rebellion against their creator and the threat they posed to God's people was so vile that God ultimately calls the Israelite army to carry out his judgment. We as the church of Jesus Christ are not a army called to take up physical weapons against God's foes. As a matter of fact, we have Jesus saying, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We're called to that in Matthew 5, much as Jonah in the Old Testament is is an example of one who was called and sent to a city to preach repentance, that they may live, preach repentance so that they may turn and find life. We are, Romans 12 tells us, to rest in the justice of God, to rest in in the the vengeance, if you will, of God, the avenging work of a just God. But there is still that core principle that human beings are made in the image of God and life is is God's gift. And so if a, a person or a force or a country is going to destroy human life, to trivialize human life, to to seek to kill people. There is a biblical right to both self-defense and punishment that we see in Scripture because God is about preserving life and cherishing life. And so there is a, a warrant for law enforcement, for governing authorities, for the military to be sanctioned by God to protect Life And there is a role for deadly force in that to defend against attack, to defend against the indiscriminate killing of human beings and to punish those who would cheapen and destroy human life. The application of this truth, those those are a couple of the hard ones. The application of this truth, certainly for us as believers in Jesus Christ, should also extend from the mother's womb to the dying breath of the one whose body is racked with disease and age. We as believers in Jesus Christ should fundamentally hold to the fact that the image of God means that we cherish life at all stages. And so when David says in Psalm 139, you knit me together in my mother's womb, you formed me 
in those inmost parts, that is, a, that is a lesson to us about God's unique design even prior to conception. He says in Jeremiah, I knew you before you were born. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrate you. I set you apart. He's making it very clear that God cherishes life not from the moment that it is born, but even before conception, God knows that life, and we should, as believers in Jesus Christ, cherish life in the womb. We should cherish life all the way through. We talked last week about the, the gray-haired ones with wisdom and the, the call to cherish the wisdom of our elders and to care for them as well, and we should care for them as well and love them and see the image of God in them. I, I could spend more time on this. Pastor Stuart and I have preached on this topic in the last couple of Januaries, so you can go back and you can listen to one of those if you, you still have questions. Or, or as with all of these, your home group leaders are anxious to have these discussions about these difficult topics when you meet in home group. <laughs> That's just one for you home group guys. It, it, the reality here, and we know this, is the medical community has made this really difficult. They do wonderful things, and by God's common grace, they do an amazing job of, of, of helping to extend life, and yet there are a myriad of ethical dilemmas from embryonic stem cell research to artificially preserving life well past the point that it would otherwise be viable, all the way to the use of euthanasia that now cause us to face these difficult ethical dilemmas and, and things that we, we can't sit here and, and go through and answer all of them this morning. I'm going to give you a quote from Philip Ryken again that I think is helpful on this. He says, there is a legitimate moral distinction between killing and allowing someone who is terminally ill to die. In other words, there is a difference between terminating life, which is never permissible, and terminating treatment, which can be a way of turning life back over to God. But this calls for constant vigilance because many people, including many health professionals, don't know the difference, and thus they often cross the line that should never be crossed. Let me say this about Reichen's quote, which is really helpful. God is sovereign. Philip Reichen believes that. So when he speaks of turning life back over to God, he's not implying by that that somehow we are in control until the moment when we say, okay, now God, you can be in control. What he's talking about is this is what it looks like from our level, that this is what we see in terms of our decisions and our actions when we are dealing with these tough medical treatment questions. And there are times, I think as he's implying here, when our submission to God's rule may make it wisest to step back from artificial means of preserving life. It may be the thing that we, we believe is, is withholding that, that treatment is, is the right thing when, when someone is in a terminal illness. All of those situations, he's right, require vigilance and prayer and thought and counsel from other believers because these are difficult areas for us to think about. And, and, and the point is, I think, if, if for anything for us as believers, is that we should be acting out of faith in God and for the glory of God. That should be our overriding motive in, in, in how we treat these things and how we think about them. And that's why we think about them, because we understand the image of God, and, and it's that important to consider. In case we haven't dealt with enough hard subjects, one more. That's the issue of suicide. God's command that we cherish human life and that God is sovereign over it makes suicide to be a violation of the sixth commandment. 
Now listen, there may be multiple circumstances that, that happen in the background to any suicide, including organic ones. And we grieve for the person who believed suicide was the, the way out at that moment, and we grieve for the family left behind. But our compassion must not cloud the reality that we are not to be masters over our own lives, that we have a sovereign master who said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are not your own. You were bought with, your, with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. He, he's talking in that context very specifically about sexual sin, but the application of that is very clear, that we are called to understand his lordship over our lives and over our bodies. We are not lords over them. And when suicide is seen in the Bible, Saul, Judas Iscariot, a couple of others, there are a few cases like that. They are, the men are never applauded. They are each in some level of despair. They are each struggling with some sin at the time. Suicide for a believer, it would seem, is evidence of some measure of wrong thinking, some lack of faith in God's promises, some disobedience to the author of life. And even then, I would go back to what I said before, and even then there, are, there may well be organic things that are going on with the mind and making clear thinking so difficult at that stage in life. But it's important for us to know this. Nowhere in Scripture is suicide described as an unforgivable sin. It is not outside of the grace and forgiveness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, just as murder is not outside the grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. There, there is, this is not an unpardonable sin. The only unpardonable sin is stubborn rejection of Jesus Christ as Savior. It is denying the truth of what the Spirit is testifying to us and, and saying, no, I reject him and I will not believe in him. That is the one. This is not. Does that help? I hope it does. Um, here we go. If none of those provoked you particularly, this, this should. Matthew 5. Jesus now and his commentary on the sixth commandment. Here's the part that brings it all home to us and, and makes it clear that none of us get a pass on this one. In Matthew 5, Jesus speaking to a crowd of people, some of whom include religious leaders who think they are the righteous ones in the crowd. They are the ones who they can recite the 10 and, and they know them and they keep them and they're good people. And Jesus, in the midst of that crowd, says, you've heard that you shall not murder. Yes, that's right. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Okay, everybody takes a pause at that moment. Wait, angry, angry at my brother? Happens often, and that's subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. You're you're. you're brought before the religious leaders. This is such a bad thing that you're doing. In fact, he says, it gets worse. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Wait a minute. This was just you shall not murder. And now Jesus is saying, the stuff that's gone on in your heart, the stuff that's come out of your mouth, is sinful. It is a violation of the sixth commandment. And any commandment that's broken makes us liable to the sentence of death, of eternal death. We are born sinners. We are depraved sinners. And we reflect that by our breaking of the commandments. And so he is saying that here. You've done it. You're guilty. James 3, when it addresses the damage we do with our tongue, says the tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father. With it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. 
temptation here is to say, well, that's a bit of an exaggeration to compare words to poison. I mean, poison actually kills, and yet James is not backing down. He is taking the words of Jesus and just putting another application to it and saying, if if you're going to tear people up with your words, it is as if in your heart you are murdering them. You You are attacking those who are made in the likeness of God. Our thoughts and our words reveal our hearts, and, and, and they show that we are, in that moment, showing contempt to a soul that has been made in the very image of God by declaring that person to be a fool or whatever it is. Our angry thoughts and insulting words are, are cheapening the value of human life, and we are breaking the sixth commandment. And it is, it is that sinful, foolish, careless disdain in our hearts that then bubbles over into scornful, hateful talk. And while we haven't pulled a trigger or thrust a knife or dealt a blow that kills, it does not excuse the fact that the same elements that lead to that physical violence are what's happening in our hearts at that moment. It's the same, I want this and you're stopping me from it and I want you to know how much I hate you in this moment, even if I don't quite use that language. That's what I'm declaring. I am speaking to one who is made in the image of God. And and so James, in James chapter 4, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Normal words here, right? But then he starts using this language. Is not this your passions that are at war, that rage within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And we go... James, let's not go over the top here with the hyperbole. I'm not murdering anyone. And yet James is saying, no, this is what Jesus taught you are in in, in your attitude toward human life made in the image of God by allowing this rage within you to, to stir violently against that person. It's the same stuff that leads to murder. And the sinful attitude is, is just as sinful before God, even when there's no physical harm. When I bitterly write you off as some blanking blank who messed up my day, I am violating the sixth commandment. It's the difference for when that that person who a hundred yards ahead of me decides to pull that right turn on red, and do I, in a godly way, say, that was a very foolish action that endangered their life, and they shouldn't have done that. If you had recording in my car, you would hear that. That has never come out of my mouth at that moment. It is more like, you fool. How do you do that? How do you do that to me, right? And that's, that's what he's speaking of here. That that driver, that car is made in the image of God. And so we have no excuse when we start venting sinful anger. Don't justify it at that moment. Acknowledge it for what it is. The beauty in, in this is, is that We as believers understand God's grace in the gospel. And so when we struggle here, there is repentance and there is that that joy in finding forgiveness from our God and acknowledging these things. One one other application for your consideration, this, we'll see if this pokes you at all. Does Does your entertainment treat human life cheaply? Do the things that you watch, the games, the books, the movies, to what degree has a a godless culture around us inoculated us to allow death to be trivialized to make it part of our leisure time where killing and murder and all of that is just part of entertainment. To what degree have we become conditioned and desensitized toward the value of human life? 
<laughs> in the first service, I, I mentioned a movie, and I, I said at the break, I'm not gonna mention a movie again, because I think when I did that, it just sends everybody leaving going, oh, so he thought blank was bad. If you wanna go back and watch the video from the first movie, you can see what the first sermon, you can figure out what it was. And, I, and, I, and my point is not to say, your movie that you're thinking of that it, it, it's bad or, or your game that you play. I, I'm, what I want to challenge you to do is what Philippians 4, what Paul says when he says, think on whatever is true and lovely and upright, whatever is good and praiseworthy, think of these things. And if we are, if we are dwelling our minds on things that are celebrating gore and violence and death or just trivializing death and trivializing life, we need to rethink that. We really need to rethink what we're doing in those, those situations. One last application. Most of you know the story Jesus told in Luke 10 of the Good Samaritan, right? This man is walking down a lonely road. He is accosted. He is beaten. He is robbed. He is stripped. He is left for dead by the side of the road, and, and he will die there if left unattended. We know who broke the sixth commandment in that case, right? The guys who robbed him, who beat him within an inch of his life, we, we understand they broke the sixth commandment. But then we get this Levite and this priest who are walking down the road and intentionally cross over because they don't want to get near this scene. They don't want to be involved in it. They don't want to have to deal with it. And so they move on and they leave this man to die if, if that's the case. And along comes this this guy who is from the ethnically different group, as, as he would have been understood at that time, the Samaritan, the one that the Levite and the priest would have looked down on. And he comes and he tends to this man. And he nurses his wounds and he takes him to a place where he can get healing and he, he pays for his care and he provides for him. Who in this instance is cherishing the image of God and who is completely ignoring it and trivializing it. The Levite and the priest who walked by could have cared less at that moment. And here comes this good Samaritan who cares for him. Our neighbor, and, and the point of, of Luke 10 is to help us broaden that definition of neighbor. Jesus is wanting us to be more, more broad with that. Our neighbor may not always seem especially worthy of mercy or assistance. And in fact, there are times when our neighbor may even look or act like an enemy in our minds, may look like somebody or act like somebody that we, we don't want to have fellowship with. And, and, and the point is, it is the image of God that is stamped on that person that should draw us to them, to love them like Christ. It is the fact that even if they don't love our God, even if they treat us poorly, they are still made in the image of God. And if there's an opportunity for us to love that person and to care for that person, it should be our desire to glorify God who has made man in his image and who alone can judge his heart. God is the, the Lord of life. And that Lord of life has said, I have made it in my image. We are called to cherish it not to trivialize it or to take it cheaply. You can walk from the Psalms through the Old Testament minor prophets and there's warning after warning after warning, exhortations against injustice. Stop treating these people. God, God brings these people into your midst and some of them are foreigners and some of them are struggling and some of them are going through terrible circumstances in life. Stop mistreating them. Show them justice because our God loves justice. He loves mercy and he calls us to be the same because they are made in his image. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your creation of human life. Thank you that we here this morning as, as thinking human beings can ponder these truths in scripture. 
And for all here who are trusting in Jesus Christ, we have at work within us your spirit helping us to to see and to, to understand and to meditate on these truths. Thank you for that. Thank you for the the sweet privilege it is to have been made in your image to be the the crowning jewel of your creation. Forgive us for when we treat that lightly, for when we are harsh with others, for when our, our violence perhaps stops short of some ultimate act, but nonetheless what rages in our hearts is unseemly. It's evil. It's violent. Father, thank you for your grace through Jesus Christ. Thank you that your son came and endured what was, from a human perspective, the the horrors of injustice, executed in a way that was done by a government and yet done so wrongly, and yet so according to your eternal plan to give your son as a sacrifice on the cross that he might die for our anger, our insults, our mocking, our looking lightly at life or trivializing death. Thank you that your son paid the price on the cross. Thank you that we have forgiveness and hope. Thank you that you are a God of generous grace toward your people. I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is not trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, that one of the things we've talked about would be a profound reality to them, that the fact that we are living beings, that that soul, that person will live for eternity, that, that it doesn't stop here with death, but that, as your word says, it's appointed unto man to die and then to face judgment, then to stand before the Creator. And so, Father, if there are any who are not trusting in Christ, would you open their eyes to embrace Jesus as Savior, to bow before him, to turn from their sin of rejecting him and rebelling against you and believe that Jesus Christ came, fulfilled the law perfectly, died on the cross as a punishment, taking our punishment on himself for sin and then rising again to declare victory over sin and death. Father, help us this new week to be a people who cherish life by how we care for others. Help us to be aware and thinking about the image of God and the people we are driving alongside of and encountering along the way and and that you put in our lives to give us opportunities to serve. May we look and act like Christ and for them exposit what the image of God looks like by giving them a, an up-close look at that. Help us to do that. We, we don't do that naturally. Help us to do that by your spirit and your grace working within us and, and, and doing life together as community that we might encourage each other. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.